Presenting sponsor of The Audible is Trader Joe's. Inside Trader Joe's is a five-part podcast series that takes you literally inside Trader Joe's. Go inside the TJ's tasting panel, travel to wineries in Napa Valley, and around the world to discover the next great Trader Joe's products. Discover why they wear those super fashionable Hawaiian shirts. You'll find Inside Trader Joe's on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the latest edition of The Audible. I am Bruce Feldman, joined, as often is the case, by my colleague Stuart Mandel. And we have an interesting podcast. It is signing day, and we are going to have a guy who had a huge day today, and that's Oregon head coach Mario Cristobal, whose who's Ducks signed a top-five class, which is unprecedented, up in Eugene. We'll get to him in a little bit, but before we do... Uh, Stu, some interesting things have shaken out. I'm just curious as to how far down the rabbit hole did you get with recruiting coverage at this point? I have to admit, you know, while I am a proponent of the early signing period, I have not quite adapted to it myself. I um, I miss having all of January once the, the season was over and I had a little bit more time to fully immerse myself in all of the names I need to know for the class that would sign in February now you look up and whoa they've all you know three quarters of them have already signed as of today but uh you know I'm following what's going on it seems to me tell me if you agree that in our time covering the sport there's just been like various phases of well now Pete Carroll's the hot recruiter and now or Mac Brown and now Pete Carroll and then Urban Meyer and then Nick Saban and Nick Saban's obviously been that for a long time now but once again, while Alabama is going to sign the number one class, we are seeing Kirby Smart. They're not going away. Georgia continues to, to be right at Alabama's uh, uh, level now when it comes to recruiting. Yeah, I think the biggest thing you would look at is the dominance of the SEC, which is more what we heard. But as far as 247's rankings, the top four teams are all SEC teams. And three of them goes Alabama, then Georgia, and then A&M, followed by LSU. The top three are all the other two guys are Nick Saban protégés. Obviously Kirby Smart as you mentioned and then Jimbo Fisher what he's done in College Station. So you have, you know, big time ramped up aggressive recruiting operations and they close with a flourish which they've done again. And I think one thing that's a little different probably this year just from talking to folks inside college football last year was it was the first early signing period and to some degree Alabama maybe was was kind of figuring out things last year and in this case this time they got it down pretty good and were ramped up and ready to roll now they've lost some assistant coaches but the machine just keeps moving on they lost some of their top recruiters and maybe that was felt a little bit last year when they slipped all the way to number five but then he obviously went and remade his staff and it's no secret at the time that he was going younger uh, he was looking for great recruiters, and it has certainly paid off. Now, I would say the most noteworthy development in terms of where guys decided to go. I mean, let's be clear. Most of these guys that are signing here in December have been committed somewhere for a long time. But we did have a few surprises, and most notably, a fairly stunning development in terms of quarterback situation with Georgia and Ohio State. Right. So Dwan Mathis, who's a Michigan kid who, who had actually decommitted a few times in the process, 
really long six five six six kid with a basketball background had been committed to Ohio State, I think since June. On signing day, he did a flip. And Ohio State had lost a couple of guys. He was the one that I would say was kind of the head turner in this process. So talking to somebody inside the Georgia program, and I said, uh, who or what was the key in flipping him, do you think? And this was the answer. Justin putting his name in the portal with a little bit of smiley face. Uh, Justin being Justin Fields, who was the the top quarterback recruit and the top recruit really in the country last year. And as we'll get to probably a little later in the podcast, I think we can talk more about Justin Fields and his decision, which looks like he's set on leaving Georgia for someplace else, had a little bit of a shockwave effect because, look, there's a lot of people who think hit the school, from what I understand, that, that leads for his services would be Ohio State. So I think if you're Ryan Day, you're probably pretty comfortable with that. If it's what it turns out, you end up with Justin Fields. I think you you could afford to lo- lose on a quarterback who's probably a little more of a project. Well, yeah, we might as well just address the Justin Fields situation now. I think we've known for a while this was a possibility. When you're the number one quarterback recruit in the country, you expect to go in and win the job as a true freshman. He obviously did not. Jake Fromm has only further entrenched himself there. Justin Fields would see, you know, certain opportunities here and there, but mostly just as a, as you know, they, they barely let him pass. So, at the end of the day, he wasn't going to become the starting quarterback next year. So, you know, I think some Georgia fans are upset that uh, that that he's leaving after just one season. But this is the way college football is right now. Now, the unique situation here is that he may try to find a way to become immediately eligible. Yeah, and there's an interesting case there. Now, first, the news was first reported by Dan Wolken from USA Today, and he had alluded to perhaps a, a part of an appeal process strategy which would reference uh, those kind of ugly racist racist comments made in direction of Justin Fields during a during a Georgia game, and they were made apparently by a Georgia baseball player in the stands. Now that player, and I think Andy Staples had written a little more about this story uh, earlier this week about how the player had acknowledged and was apologetic of the comments. Now, when I saw that, I was like, okay, you know, who knows how the NCA, you know, in its new new uh, stance on these things would handle this now certainly no no school wants to be in the middle of an ugly ugly lawsuit or potential lawsuit especially when it has racial overtones as as this the direction of this sounded like it was going the part that's i think uh, as somebody explained to me that could make this a little more of a direct connection would be justin fields for a lot of people who don't remember this was a really talented baseball prospect and if justin fields says hey you know i was thinking of going to play baseball and then even though this player this player is no longer on the Georgia program, depending on who else that player was sitting with in the in the game, you know, in the stands that day, I would imagine they may be making the case that this is not a supportive environment to go into if he's you know, if he's if this is part of the baseball team. And so on one hand you have the aspect of Justin Fields' sister, younger sister, I believe, is now committed to go to the University of Georgia as an athlete. So maybe Georgia would say, well, wait a minute, if the environment is is so uncomfortable, why would you let another child go there? But the question is going to be, if it gets to this, is this something Georgia wants to even bring up? Or do they just want to just kind of wash their hands on it and move on? Because like I said, the the subject matter, as as Andy and, and Wolken both suggested, 
you know, goes to an ugly place. And I don't know if Georgia wants to, wants to, you know, be attached to that any more than it already is. The NCAA really opened a Pandora's box last year when they, you know, at first they were going the other direction. They wanted to eliminate hardship waivers altogether. They felt like guys were starting to exploit that. People had a, were always citing a sick family member. Maybe that was legit. Maybe it wasn't. But when Shea Patterson, uh, and I believe the change of rule that he took advantage of had just happened, was able to convince them to be media eligible because of a bowl ban, now everybody can go, go up to the NCAA and try to get eligible for whatever reason they might be able to try to cite. And this one, you know, if they grant it, you're opening the door for a whole lot of other requests like it, but do you really want to be the optics of, of, like you said, of Georgia either objecting to it or the NCAA saying that's not a good enough reason would be really ugly. So, you know, I'm inclined to think that if he does go down that route that he would be immediately eligible next year, which could have obviously huge ramifications for college football, especially if it's Ohio State where, although he hasn't announced anything yet, the common thinking is that Dwayne Haskins will turn pro. Yeah, I mean, that's the way it's a lot of people think it's going to go. And we'll see how this, you know, certainly he's going to lose a bunch of good receivers and and whatnot. If you're looking at him going, hey, people think he's going to be a top 10 pick. How do you stay there? Now, personally, you know, having been around around Dwayne Haskins, he's an impressive kid. But, you know, he's still a young kid. But again, if you're a top 10 pick, if that's what it's going to be, it's hard to say no to that. So if Justin Fields is looking at a chance to jump in there into the middle of that situation, you know, as talented as that kid is, it'd be very interesting to see what Ryan Day could do with him. But I think that story is going to play out over the next month or so, and we'll see which direction it goes in. Because I don't think this is going to be as hot a year of of grad transfer quarterback guys as it's been in recent years. I mean, there was a there was a talented kid from Ball State who's already gone to Vanderbilt, and you know, there's actually a couple of Ball State kids who've already left. Another one is a really good running back who led the Mac in rushing a couple of years ago. And he's actually Chris Klein. And that kid's James Gilbert, by the way, his, he's actually Chris Kleiman's really first big recruit at K state. So we'll see, we'll see what it's going to be like on the grad transfer case. But as you said, with the NCA, how it's handled these transfer appeal processes, it may not be grad transfers who can make the immediate impact. It may be kids who are going right from one school to the X as underclassmen. All right, so back to the recruiting. What other storylines stood out to you the most? A couple of things. So first of all, I would say, to me, the we mentioned one big flip, and I was a quarterback. Another big flip was Sam Howell, who's a, a quarterback from the state of North Carolina, had been committed to FSU for a long time. And I got to see him at the Elite 11. This is not a great group of quarterbacks relative the past few years. I, I think it's pretty far down compared to the group last year and certainly compared to that Josh Rosen, Sam Darnold group from three from four years ago now. But I thought Sam Howell was one of the more impressive kids. He has a, he reminds you a little bit of Baker Mayfield and he's a little bigger, but he's got just got a playmaking confidence about him. He was committed to FSU, like I said, for a long time. Mac Brown came in there and that was a must have guy. He had just uh, added Phil Longo, who's a big air raid guy, to run the offense. And I could see this kid putting up a lot of yards in Chapel Hill. And that was a big pull for them. And, and it's it's more bad news, honestly, for, for FSU, which has been reeling now. Willie Taggart's still really looking for his offensive coordinator. And we'll see how that's going to play out over the next couple of weeks. But right now, I think when you look, to me, 
you know, they that was a disappointing shot for FSU. But the one that, you know, is kind of uh, what I think is reeling more than anything else is actually, you know, their arch rival in Coral Gables, and that's Miami. Now, Miami lost Manny Diaz to now being the head coach at Temple. I think Manny was the best thing that, that Mark Rickert had going there. And their recruiting, which was really good last year, has really tailed off after the team was, you know, preseason top 10 and finished out of the top 25. And Mark Rick's program has really lost whatever momentum it had now. I mean, you know, everybody makes um, jokes about how on signing day, everybody signed the greatest class they've ever signed. Obviously, nobody comes to their press conference and says, yeah, this was a really disappointing class. But it sure seems like if anybody wanted to be honest and do that, it would be Mark Rick this year. And it, you're right. It's, uh, I mean, he had, I believe, they've had more players decommit over this recruiting cycle than actually signed on Wednesday. I think the the departure of of Manny Diaz was a big reason behind that, though. And sometimes program, most times programs can overcome it or at least withstand it. This one is not doing a very good job of that right now. And again, I th- I think some of that is just because you had one side of the ball that was really holding its holding its end up, and the other side, the offense had been really really sputtering. And I think you know I think there's a lot of people looking at it going. I don't know. I don't feel so great about this direction right now. And I think, I mean, Manny may have been the, the, the source of the most recent defections, but this has been going on for a little while now. So it's hard to believe we've gone in a year's time from Mark Richt having Miami, I believe, what, they were 10-0, and right, going to that Pittsburgh game, feeling that the U is on the verge of being back to just nothing's going right for him. And the people, you know, you look at what Georgia's doing now since he left and the Georgia fans who wanted to run him off were probably a little bit validated. Like, do you, what do you think? Do you think he can get it back in the right direction? Honestly, no, I don't think he can. I think that the momentum he had, and look, if, if Mark Rick doesn't get them back in the top 10 for the rest of his tenure, I will say this, the ability, the way he was able to, to help raise money for the university, I think was make, will make his tire. Like you could never say, you know, in the next two years, they are don't make the top twenty-five. I don't think you could you could you know kind of rip his hire just because the way he was able to help raise money and generate facilities-wise, Mark Richt had a huge role in that in a way that most coaches usually do not in a situation like that. Now, having said all that, some of the decisions on offense have just been really underwhelming, and like I said, it's just sputtered, and I don't know. This was a team that had a top 10 class last year, but now I don't think they're going to have a top 35 class. And considering when this year started out, you were a top 10 program, as you mentioned. I mean, they blew Notre Dame off the field last year. Now, they didn't finish great, but I think some of that has to do with, you know, not, they've lost so much momentum that I, I don't think it bodes well for the future. And I, I don't, I'm just giving you an honest answer. I, I didn't think we'd quite go in this direction, but I just think they're reeling, and I don't, I don't see them getting it back in a positive direction where they're going to be back in the top 10. I just don't see it. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, and I'm a big Mark Rick fan, and I wanted to believe that this just kind of a perfect marriage of the guy at the right stage of his career and a program that, that was looking to get back to relevance. But uh, the last 12 months, everything that could go wrong has gone wrong. In particular, you know, when you think of Mark Rick's tenure at Georgia— he had so many great quarterbacks. He was the quarterback guru, if you will, 
when it finally went bad at the end was like the pretty much the one time like when um the guy from virginia grayson lambert was starting a quarterback for them mm-hmm. uh was not was when things really turned south and he still doesn't have that guy at miami he kind of flipped back and forth all year uh between rosier and perry and neither of them really gave you great reason for confidence by the end of the year so it's hard. It's hard to come back from that. Now, he's not going to get fired or anything, but I think that the fan base goes into 2019 feeling pretty pretty down about things. Yeah. I mean, and look, the, again, the, the thing that most people can hang their hat on usually is the optimism of recruiting, and that's not the case here. Moving on, I'll tell you what, a couple of things that did catch my eye today in, in other places. Now, we mentioned the SEC and, and the success it had. Oregon. Again, here's another Nick Saban protege, Mario Cristobal, took some of that model and the energy and the recruiting connections he has, and he's got a top five class coming. And they crushed it in Southern California in a way that Oregon, which has gotten some really good players in the past. I mean, it's not like they hadn't had, you know, Deontay, uh, DeAnthony Thomas or, or some of those guys like that. They've had some big time guys over the years, but nothing to the degree of this kind of run of four and five five star guys and now we're joined by oregon head coach mario cristobal who finished today with a top five recruiting class so mario welcome to the audible thanks for having me appreciate it yeah so you've always had a big reputation as a recruiter especially from your days at miami and then at alabama oregon has never signed a class like this why do you think you guys were able to land a top five class there well i mean i think I think that Oregon's an awesome place, and I think the staff did an unbelievable job just getting it out there, really doing a good job of, in a passionate manner, in a genuine and truthful manner, just working with a lot of energy and making sure that the Oregon story and and our place itself was out there and that people were invited in constantly so we could show them what we're all about. And uh, it really paid dividends. You'd be surprised at some of the visitors and some of the incredible reactions we had, and it paid off in a a historical day for our program. It's one thing to get these kids committed, and you had a bunch of these guys, especially in Southern California, committed for a while, and it seemed like you had a lot of buzz going. But it's another thing to get them actually signed when it seems like everybody else is going to, come in and try to flip your guys what do you think the biggest challenges you guys face to get to this day and get through the home stretch were to overcome the usc's and and some of the other programs who typically end up getting the four and five star guys not necessarily oregon well i think that now i think people see the direction of the program they see our investment in the strength conditioning program they see our, our networking opportunities and life after football opportunities which are second to none you know, through all the contacts from our alum to um, just being associated with Nike. I mean, there's so many things that tie into Oregon and just great achievement, being a high achiever. So I think, uh, and again, the Oregon's past and, and people know how good Oregon has been. And they feel that we're, we're, we're working our way back there and working our way back there fast. And it's great to be able to get a bunch of these guys here early so that we can uh, get to work and get them prepared for the season. How much do you think that just having been around your program a little bit and seeing it's ultra high energy? Everybody knows about the facilities. We've known that for a little while and the uniforms and the and the energy of it. But it seemed like it was ramped up to a different level when you took over. You bring in Coach Feld and the personality of the strength program. The persona is, is amped up even more. Do you think that's something that resonated with kids or is that more of a social media side that – that maybe isn't as big as closing the deal, or how much did that factor into you? You think? No, I, I think it plays a, a tremendous uh, role in, in not only prospects but their parents just seeing the type of energy and passion that 
our coaches have for our place and, and our crafts. I mean, that's a huge thing now. I mean, for us, and we host a lot of visitors now, and we want to make sure when they're here they get to see us and, and, and full force. So I'd rather they come for practice than for a game. You know, the game is fun and entertaining, but I want them to see what they're going to get on a daily basis. I want them to see exactly what we're about. And I want them to see our team. I want them to see how they feel they fit in with our team. In other words, we want complete transparency so that the guys can uh, just really feel comfortable when they make a decision. Well, this is your first full recruiting class as the head coach there. What did you guys think you needed to address most with this class? Well, we felt that across the board we needed just more elite caliber football players. And when we played this year, we entered the season before signing some grad transfers at the end with 72 scholarship players. That's 72 out of 85. That's 13 short. And that was to be able to manage some of the mishaps of uh, the previous regimes, which, again, nothing against anyone. It just it worked out that way, and it's our job to fix it. And, and in doing so, you know, we had to, to play a little bit shorthanded. So across the board, the wide receiver position had to be addressed, and we feel awesome about the guys that are coming in. And, and not only that, but we, we also had to, you know, we have two senior running backs, and we felt we had to get, you know, a couple of guys that could really be difference makers and game breakers for us, guys that could not only, you know, make the tough yards, but guys that now can break a tackle and go the distance and create explosive plays. So, and, of course, at the offensive line position, we, we needed a, a legitimate, you know, tackle, and we needed a legitimate big-time guard, both a big-time tackle and a big-time guard, and we felt we got the best that there was out there, both those guys, and, and Salah and, and Jonah. So our defensive line was a huge need, especially a pass rusher, that we prefer not to take off the field. And, and what can you say in, in KT, Kayvon Thibodeau, you know, it's uh, hard, to, uh, hard to imagine a better scenario where he's here. But both Suave and Keon, when you watch them on film, you're going to see we got ourselves a couple of workhorses inside that are going to develop and are really good players. You mentioned Thibodeau. So for a lot of people, he was the number one recruit in the country. You beat your old boss, Nick Saban, among others, to get him. How hard was that to pull off? Well, I think recruiting guys like that in general are difficult because they're always going to see everybody's best when they visit a university, right? I mean, it's going to be red carpet treatment. You know, they're going to meet every uh, top administrator. They're going to see the best classrooms and facilities imaginable. So I think that's fine. I just think at the end of the day, you, you have to show them who you are and what your plan is for that particular individual. And if the fit is right and uh, the energy is there, then usually the gut feeling comes with it. And our, for our situation, luckily for us, it worked out. You were around a lot of great pass rushers, not just in your day as a player at Miami when you're an offensive lineman trying to block them, but then certainly at Miami as an assistant and then definitely again as the Alabama O-line coach. So for people who haven't seen Thibodeau, why do you think he's the number one recruit in the country? He's got it all. He's got everything you want, an elite pass rusher. But again, he's not only a pass rusher now. This guy could play the run. He's, a, he's, a, he's an all-down player. But as a pass rusher, he's got an unbelievable get-off explosiveness. He's got great length. He's got power. He can go speed to power, great edge rush. I mean, he could dip and rip and close on the quarterback, lean into that tackle and just close space, close ground, great balance and body control, uh, just powerful, heavy hands. He has all the tools, and he's a big man. This guy, is a, he's a large human being that's only going to get bigger and stronger and faster. So now, not to mention, by the way, he's got a super high IQ. You know, Not only regular IQ, but a football IQ. We, we expect uh, a tremendous impact. I mean, he's, what, 6'5", 240 now? What does he look like two years from now? My, it's, it's, it's hard to imagine because there's, there is no fat on that body. It's just 
he is a large frame guy with a tremendous wingspan and it's just you know he's got the wingspan and he has length he's got both so it's there's just so much potential for even more and he's already achieved a lot of things at a high level and with all those alabama classes you guys you were part of how many of these kids would you say that looks like what we were signing on signing day three or four years ago yeah, it's, it's looking like that. You know, it's getting better and better and better. You know, for us, the biggest goal was like, hey, let's, let's sign the guys that we need. And in turn, let's make, let's, let's sign the first top 10 class in, in our history. And you know what? The guys did a great job. Our players did a great job, you know, and when they hosted. And I'll, I think the reason why is because our players are extremely happy because we are challenging them. We are pushing them. We're, we're, we're making sure we're mentoring them the right way. And they're seeing some really good results on the field in the classroom. So in turn, it's just all coming together. You know, it's the way you want it. We're establishing processes in a program that we expect to lead us to championship levels. You've been a part of a lot of top five classes on your own, just at these other places. This place hasn't been. What do you say to people who are like skeptical going, ah, Oregon, they can't be recruiting a top five class? Yeah, I don't. I try not to associate with those people. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, uh, you know, I think, you know, you know me well enough. I just, uh, we just go, man. We just go. Anyone that comes here, sets foot on on our campus and our place, our facility, it's instantly they recognize that it's one of a kind. It's unique and it won't be duplicated in our lifetime. I don't think so. We want to continue to to just honor those that built this place, put it together. Those that came before us by by busting our tails and, and putting the word out there about what Oregon is all about. The conference you're in, the Pac-12, has like taken a beating perception-wise in the last year or so. And everyone talks about SEC and, and even some of the other you know schools, whether it's a few t- at the top of the Big Ten and everything like that. How are you guys able to maybe overcome some things that some other Pac-12 programs seem to have a hard time with? Well, I mean, I think football is cyclical, you know, and in May, I know last year was a rough postseason year for the Pac-12, but, you know, we, the Pac-12 is, is uh, it's very even. It's very competitive. It, uh, it's a little bit different than some of the other conferences, which are, you know, so so top-heavy with uh, higher caliber teams than the rest of the conference. So I get it, but uh, at the same time, I don't because... I mean, I've been in those conferences and, and I see so many similarities and, and there might be a position group, you know, particular defensive line that has stood out maybe more in one conference or another. But aside from that, I mean, there's, there's so many similarities and, and equal in so many parts that um, the Pac-12 has nothing but upside. And I think it'll show this year in the postseason. Do you recruit much differently than you did when you were in Tuscaloosa or in Coral Gables, perception-wise? No. no, not at all. Not at all. It's never changed. My dad always told me that. He's... He told me uh, he never understood why, you know, the United States of America had all these lines separating in the 50 states. It's like, what, what do those lines really mean? Like, you know, can, does that separation make you different from that neighboring state or whatnot? He's like, hey, man, hard work and being real, being genuine, it it's, just transcends all those those funny lines on the map and any geographic barriers. So we, uh, we abide by that type of philosophy, and it's paid off. The best recruiter in this recruiting class was who? As a player or as yeah, a coach? No, as a player. Man, on our team? That you just brought. No, not a host kid, but maybe one of the kids who you got committed early who, who became like kind of a rallying cry for the other kids they were trying to get. Gosh, they, they all did such a good job. Man, wow. If whoever I say, the rest of them are going to call me up and just let me let me have it. You know, I gosh, Jonah was great. Mace was great. J.R. Micah was super. Sean was great. Keon. Keon started it all. Let's go with Keon. Keon was uh, the catalyst. He was the first one to hop in 
and it uh, it was a catalyst for another four to six guys that hopped in soon after, and it led to the Cali flock and the rest of these signings. And Keon was a big modern day kid. That's obviously a good school to be connected with. At what point did that that feel like? Hey, we we may get this whole bunch coming here. It's not just going to be one or two. We're gonna we're gonna load up in this class. Um, you know, it, it's hard to tell. You've seen so many of these processes at some point or another go sideways. So it just felt right. They it felt right. They had been here for the spring game. Uh, they had come to an SNL event. They were they were here for some important days and. It just gave us opportunities to bond. You know, I think a lot of times it's it's better to be around them during you know the off season because they can see the nuts and bolts of the operation and see how guys go to class and work out, and, and they get to be around you as coaches and as people. So I think um, it just it was a perfect storm. Besides Thibodeau, who else do you see coming in? You think you expect to make an impact right away, and you think physically are ready to do that? Oh, I think I think so many of these guys are capable. I, it'd be unfair to say to start naming it off because it would be a ton. I mean, I'm looking at the board right now, and I, every single one of these guys that we recruited, we recruited them to come in and make an impact. You know, it's uh, so, and, and we've impressed that upon them, and not uh, in a challenging way. I think sometimes you run into players out there that get promised stuff. Like, you know, nothing is more frustrating when a player tells you, oh, well, the other universe told me that I'm starting. I'm like, well, you ought to go there, man. That's a great promise. That's <laughs> awesome, you know? And um, we promised them hard work and an opportunity. And uh, they're going to get plenty of that. We won't disappoint. Is there anything different about how you approach recruiting with an early signing period and maybe with things a little newer or different than, okay, there's a process and it was defined where it was before. And now all of a sudden, you know, this is the first full year and it's it's everything else is, is, is a little bit different than it probably was before. I, I got to be honest, I like it. I really I didn't like it last year because we had a game in the middle of the contact period. No one can like that. That's that's brutal, as bad as it gets. But the spring visits make it different. It certainly does. And, uh, you know, it paid off for us in a couple of commitments that stuck. I was worried about that. I was worried about if you visit someone in spring and that's their official visit, if they come from a, from a long distance, when are they going to be able to come back again? And it, uh, our guys were in phase. It, uh, it was that impressive when they were here, you know, beautiful weather and a great time around the place that it was, it was great. Just just one thing on your tight end, you get famous last name now, Patrick Herbert, just from down the road. How much do you hope he can recruit his brother to stay for one more day? <laughs> well, you know, I often uh, remind Patrick that he has been recruited independently of who his brother is. And when you watch him play, Bruce, you're going to see why. This guy is really a special player now. And I don't think he gets enough credit for the physicality that he brings to the table. I think if he was in an area that uh, maybe some of the social media and some of those websites consider more of a hotbed, I think his name would have been one that explodes out there all the time nationally. This guy's a big time, uh, big time player, and I, uh, I, I will stay away from him in terms of recruiting his brother. I seen for now. <laughs> Are you guys done, or you guys have anything left for for February? We have room, you know. We have room, and we're gonna kind of weigh our options and, and see. Uh, exactly where we're at certainly there's some, some really good football players out there we want to uh, just kind of assess where we're at throughout this bowl and the practices that we have really important to have a, a great game you know against michigan state and and then go out and, and see if we can make a, a couple of additions to our class all right mario well, we appreciate your time congrats on the top five class i know a lot of oregon fans are certainly fired up about it well i appreciate you uh, we're fired up about it it's um uh, 
you know, we have we, we have a lot of work to do here. We knew that, you know, upon, you know, being appointed last season. And, and it starts with this. And when you can do this and then get them in here with Coach Feld and get these guys training and get them in our systems, you can do that a couple times. We're going to be hard to beat. Yeah, look, it's a sim- simple formula. It sounds like that that seems to be working in Athens. And I'm sure, obviously, Jimbo's trying to do it in College Station. It looks like there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of Saban protégés who are who had big days today. Yes, sir. Uh, keep it going. All right. Thanks, Mario. Back to the podcast in a second, but first of all, Bruce, pretty much at least for now, made it through coaching carousel season. How has your phone bill been looking? Very bloated, Stu. I feel like I'm getting charges updated from social media and basically traveling a lot. That's hitting me up like every three days my bill keeps going up like $15. Well now is the time to switch to Mint Mobile Bruce. For a limited time Mint Mobile is offering the best holiday deal in wireless you've ever seen. Three months of service for only $20. You get what does that $20 get you? Three months of wireless with five gigabytes of 4G LTE data each month plus here's the key for you my friend unlimited talk and text. Wow, that sounds like a good deal, Stu. Yep, and you can use your own phone with Mint Mobile. They just send you out a uh, SIM card, you swap that thing out, and uh, you're ready to go. You keep your old phone number along with all your existing contacts. Mint Mobile runs on the nation's fastest, most advanced LTE network, and if you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile has you covered with their 7-day money-back guarantee. So here's what you do to take advantage of this Mint Mobile holiday deal before it's gone. Get three months of wireless for $20 and get it shipped to your door for free by going to mintmobile.com slash audible. That's mintmobile.com slash audible for three months of service for just $20. Mintmobile.com slash audible. One last thing we want to talk about with recruiting before we get some other college football stuff is the dynamic in the state of Texas. Now, I could have, there's, there's certain things you can predict about recruiting before you even know any of the names of the recruits or any of the particulars, which is when there is a big name hire at a school that already does pretty well at recruiting, he's going to have a monstrous first year. So I could have told you the day Jimbo Fisher was hired that they would have a top five class today, and they do. They're number three. The question would be, can both Texas A&M and Texas recruit at that level year in and year out? It's a great question because right now Texas sits at number nine, they ha- I think they took a big step forward, as I, I assume you would agree, this year on the field. It wasn't a great year, but it was a good year. And now, you know, Tom Herman's been there been there a while. I mean, it's not like he's new to the high school coaches because he spent a lot of time, you know, there certainly before as an assistant and then at Houston. But I sit there and look at it going, you know, maybe I thought they would have probably been a little higher in the rankings than they are. Because looking in between them, you have Michigan, who had a – you know, a good year, not a great year. You certainly have Oklahoma, who's in the playoff and has a lot of luster on them. Clemson, who's the usual, you know, so I don't know who they necessarily push past, but I don't know. I just feel like it feels perceptionally like, as, and I think this is what you're hitting at, that there is such an energy around College Station with Jimbo Fisher that it feels like it's on a different plane than Texas. I mean, do you think that's real or do you think that's just, that's recruiting hype? run amok i think that's real but i think that the same thing was the case for texas last year when they had a great class you know it's something about that new coach the excitement level around a program unless it goes on to win the national championship sometimes never is higher than when the guy first gets hired and is in his first year so you know i'm not surprised it played out this way this year 
I would be more concerned for Texas if we're looking at the same exact thing a year from now, because that means Jimbo is just building on it. And I think more realistically, there's no reason why they wouldn't be able to, to both do this. When Mac Brown had it really going at Texas, Texas A&M, for the most part, was not much of a factor. That was before they joined the SEC. That was before they spent $75 million on, on their national championship head coach. It's just, you know, I went to that game this year against Clemson. There's just a whole different level of enthusiasm around that program, and it's certainly going to pay off in recruiting. But Texas also had its best year in a long time, played in the Big 12 championship game, reason to think they'll be even better next year. So I, I don't know that there's any particular reason why you couldn't come to signing day 2020 and maybe Texas is fourth and A&M is fifth or something like that. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you to follow up on the Jimbo point. Let's, let's do this. I'm going to go through the rankings and I will tell you similar to Jimbo Fisher, where it's a, where it's a a coach who has now had a full season under their belt. You tell me if you, if this is about where you thought they'd be or higher or lower in the rankings. So obviously Jimbo is three. Then the next one, Mario Cristobal, number five. I think we both agree that's probably higher than we would have thought, even as good a recruiter as he is. Right. Yes. I think touch. You told me top 10. Yeah. Top five. That's, that's pretty impressive. Okay. Then we have number 14, Florida state, Willie Taggart. Yeah, I would have thought he'd be in the top 10. I thought, would have thought he probably would have been a little higher. Dan Mullen at 16 at Florida. I mean, just to back up to that for a second, when Jimbo was, was reeling in all those top five classes at Florida State, there was a bit of a feeling of like, well, that's just, that's just what happens. When Florida State has a good coach, they, they get who they want. But Willie Taggart, who's considered a good recruiter, does it make you maybe appreciate more what Jimbo was able to do there? Uh, I think so, but then again, you look at at how what what the talent was probably at the end. Some of those classes were recruit, were ranked pretty high, and there weren't a lot of offensive linemen. It seemed like they missed on more guys than maybe the recruiting folks thought. It certainly didn't help that they have had uh, they have a big question mark on who their offensive coordinator is going to be. Yeah, I thought they would have been at least in the top ten. If you had told me quite honestly that Willie Taggart's old school Oregon and his new school Florida State would have been reversed at five and fourteen, I would have said that's about right, and I would have thought that was a pretty decent job for Cristobal to get them in the top fifteen. At number sixteen, Florida, Dan Mullen off his first year, about where you thought, or a little lower. It's better than I think a lot of Florida fans feared last summer when they got off to a really slow start, but it's still not. I mean, Steve Spurrier, Urban Meyer, Ron Zook, uh, Muschamp, those guys all had Florida in the top five or top ten every year. Yeah, uh, number 17, Tennessee. That's about right. You know, in fairness to them, they are in, there's a couple of, of blue chip four or five star guys who are still out there, and they are in big on one of the top O-linemen. Who, who has a chance as a kid from West Virginia. Obviously, that would help him. I don't know if it would push him past 16 but or 15, but given how bad they've been off the field, on the field, and again, they don't have an offensive coordinator either. So I think there's some uncertainty there. I think that's about right. Number 19, Mississippi State, Joe Moorhead. Yeah, I mean, I, that's a, probably about as high as Mississippi State gets. And then the one that I think is the biggest shocker. You know who's number 20? Mm-mm. Arkansas, who had a god-awful year on the field. Well, but that's what they hired Chad Morris to do, right? Go into Texas, use his Texas high school past, and get recruits. So you're saying you're shocked by that? I'm pretty surprised, yeah, because they were just so bad on the field. And I know he's a good recruiter with some good ties, but still. Well, it's one you can certainly promise early playing time. That you can, yeah, and there's a definite need for it, so... 
I would say that. Any other ones that kind of caught your eye as you kind of bounce around the, the, the rankings at all? Matt Brown, our editor, pointed out that as of right now, Kansas is ranked around the same place Yale is in the rankings, which should be troubling considering Yale doesn't have, is not in FBS, much less the Power Five. Should I expect a late surge from Les Miles in January and February? I don't know. I do know this, that they made a hard run at uh, one of the top linebackers in the, in the state of Louisiana and came up empty. And again, I, I think it's hard for them to go chase some fish that I think, quite honestly, Les Miles is used to getting. And now you're at Kansas and you're going up against your old school and they're going to go, wait a minute, I'm not going to go there. I may play right away, but I, I think that's one of the challenges that I think Les Miles is going to have is getting, you know, going back to the places he's used to going and, you know, wearing that, wearing a different shirt. And yeah. I just don't, I don't think the, you know, as much as Jeff Long felt like he's going to get the AD there, felt like his, his, his old buddy's going to get them in homes. He normal, you know, normally Kansas coaches aren't. It's one thing to get in the home and get a chance. It's another thing to actually have the kid buy into that. And I think that's that may be a hard reality for them there because it's not like Mac Brown at North Carolina where, you know, North Carolina's had a ton of success. They just didn't have it, have it in the last two years. But I, I do feel like the profile of that program is in a much different place than what Kansas football has been where the aberration was was a good, good couple of years that Mark Mangino had as opposed to the rest of it has been god-awful. Little update for you, by the way, on those rankings. Kansas has now surged, has now distanced itself from Yale. They are now 20 spots ahead of Yale as of this writing, but they are number 104, and Harvard is number 105. So, I'm just playing around. You shouldn't, you should never judge these guys off the class of class where they have like three weeks to get ready for it. It's that first full class, that ones we were just talking about, where okay, if he's still not recruiting well at that point. Then you may have some questions. And in fact, can I ask you one more along the lines of what you were asking me before? Mm-hmm. How about Herm Edwards at ASU coming in at number 30? About where you would expect? Pretty close. You know, that school has always recruited pretty well. And I think he has Antonio Pierce, who's former NFL player, who big ties in Southern California as a former high school coach there. I think he's a difference maker. And I could see Herm Edwards recruiting really well because he's very charismatic and he's a dynamic personality, and they had a they had a a decent year. I mean, I, I you know I think I'm trying to caution how I put this because I feel like both you and I and many other folks thought it was going to be a disaster, and it wasn't a disaster. At the same point, it wasn't a disaster, but it wasn't any better than what they had on the field performance wise that with Todd Graham. So. I thought it was about where I thought they'd end up. With, I thought that I, you're right. They finished with the same seven and six record that Todd Graham did and uh, lost the bowl game to Fresno State, a really good Fresno State team. But uh, they were better than they were the year before. They were in some ridiculous amount of one score games. They weren't getting embarrassed the way they uh, sometimes did with that with Todd Graham's defenses that were really bad towards the end. So it's still too early to say, but I, mm-hmm. I don't think it certainly hasn't been a disaster to this point, And there's no reason to think it's going to be a disaster. It's just, will he really, what's the next step? Do they become a 10 win kind of team? Uh, at which point we'll all owe a deep, deep apology to Ray Anderson, the AD who, who made that hire, uh, or will it kind of stay around where they are right now. Uh, moving on, Bruce. Hey, a couple of big stories for the athletic since the last time we recorded this podcast, in particular for Nicole Auerbach, our one of our writers. I, I want to these. These were both about the 
you know, the sudden openness of some of the most important leaders in the sport to discussing a team playoff. So this week it was Jim Delaney going on the record saying, yeah, the Big Ten is ready to have that discussion. But before that, last week, you know, I don't think this was on anybody's radar when uh, Nicole published her first story where you had Bob Bowlesby, Barry Alvarez, Gordon Gee saying for the first time on the record, you know, there are a lot of problems with this system and I think it's time for us to discuss possible expansion. So um, I've been so in the weeds with this since last week. I think I've lost a little bit of perspective. What was your reaction when you first read that first story? I don't know if I would say it was surprising just because there's been a bunch of powerful power brokers who are their conferences have been snubbed. So I'm not surprised that they were unhappy with the way this is playing out and would like to shake it up. I'd say what I am a little more surprised at is that they, and that goes to Nicole's first story from a week ago, as well as the one earlier this week, that they put their names on it. And these were on the record comments about it. Not that it was chatter or something source says this, that they put their names on it. And I think that only gives it much more traction. And I think that has put people to some degree on notice that change could happen. And as much as I think a lot of folks who cover the sport may hear otherwise, because, you, you know, again, this feels a little bit like the realignment story where you may have somebody who's a perfectly reliable source typically, but they're not a, they're not like an agent of change or they're not, you know, they're, they're one voice in a, but they're not the voice. Right. So they may feel a certain way, but that's not enough to, to mobilize anything. I mean, Jim Delaney, and I was like, when I, you know, tweeted about Nicole's story Tuesday, or whenever it was, Monday or Tuesday, I guess the days are blurring together, is one of the most powerful people in college sports. Actually, I think Jim Delaney's probably the most powerful person in college sports. Paul Feinbaum agrees with you. Well, then I'm in good company, especially (laughs) from from Paul Feinbaum, who works in the SEC networks, you know, so I, I, the question would be, the SEC, I'm sure, loves its situation. Would the SEC be tempted with the prospect of, hey, you might be able to get three teams in the playoff? You're probably almost certainly going to get two teams often in the playoff, not just maybe as the aberration. I think it would be, I think it would be the rule rather than the exception. So would that be enough? I mean, there's a lot of particulars that need to be worked out on this, but I, I definitely think it's going in that direction. Yeah, I mean, the significance, like you said, is that some pretty prominent people are willing to to go out there and kind of break. That, that's what it took. Was it took somebody breaking rank? You know, at the IMG forum in. Uh, New York the week just the week before you know all the commissioners were there they were all asked their opinion they all trotted out the company line that you know we're happy with four but behind the scenes some people weren't necessarily there and it just took somebody you know the first person was really Bullsby breaking ranks and, and not saying I want an 18 playoff even necessarily saying we're open to having that conversation now versus waiting till the end of this 12-year contract I mean they're talking about possibly you know, if there's enough support and enough urgency to make this happen in time for the year after next, for 2020. So I don't think it's so much at the SEC. I mean, the SEC would stand to gain as much as everybody else by having an A-team playoff, if not more so, because they're going to have, you know, I looked it up six of the last nine years, they would have had two teams in, you know, based on the rankings that were used at the time. I think where they got on the defensive when that first story came out was the uh, what, what Barry Alvarez and what Chuck Nynas were proposing was taking away conference championship games. The SEC is not going to get rid of that championship game. It's way too important to them. So that's where Greg Sankey went. That's where they won on the defensive. I think there are many, many hurdles that would have to be cleared to make this happen. But the biggest one would be, you know, you've got to figure out a way. Because I don't think you can 
make teams play a 16th game. I, I just don't think that would go over. So how do you keep the season the same length that it is now without making the SEC or anybody give up their championship game? Right, and I think in addition to how much of a bargaining chip the whole conference championship is game, game is for Greg Sankey in the SEC, I think it's worth adding that it's you're also talking about it in the future negotiations that they're going to have with other networks about how big of a deal that conference title game is as a bargaining chip. And so I think that's something they all need to be mindful of because what may not have as much financial value certainly to Larry Scott in the Pac-12, it's a whole different animal as it relates to the SEC title game. And I think that's, you know, we're not even talking about apples and oranges. It's like, it's like, um, it's like watermelon and a blade of grass. You know, it's just, just a very different situation. So we'll see. I, I'm sure there's going to be more stories and more chatter about it. And, but as we said a couple of weeks ago, I am, I am a fan of the idea. I think it's, I think it's, it would be better for college football than the situation we have right now. And I, of course, said that I am on board now as well, although for different reasons than you are, which you didn't seem to care about, so we won't rehash those. Yeah, <laughs> you, you're just upset Will Greer's not playing, playing, playing in the, the bowl, bowl game. game. In the bowl game. Well, you know, they, uh, the ratings for the first five bowl games on uh, Saturday were all, like, all-time lows for those games, although some of those games have only been around for four years. So there's no question this is the, the year where I'm really... Not that it hasn't already been trending this way, where I'm feeling a lot of um, apathy toward the non playoff bowls the you know what i think by that the is too why i think i think that's because this is the first year where you've been fully entrenched in being the boss and working working in this role where there's more administrative things and i think it's i think it's made you a little weary and i think it's made you a little salty at times and a little snarky but i think that that's probably added to you can i ask you something it seems like you have kind of a, a, a fixation lately about this boss, using the word boss. I heard you on Richard Deitch's podcast this week, which, by the way, great interview. People should listen to it. You talk a lot about your approach to the job and, and relative to the competition and all that. So Man, I feel like there's a it. butt coming in here somewhere. Well, you made it. You, and this is, you've, you've said it on here. Now you said it on their podcast. You said something to the effect of, you know, Stu, who would be the first to tell you that he's my boss. What, what's going on? Do I, um, do you and I need to have like a, uh, you know, hey, let's go off to the side and how are things check, a check-in conversation? What's going on here? I don't know. I just do it because I know it gets you, it gets you riled up a little bit. Is this because of the one comment at the uh, Pac-12? It is. Okay. It is. It is. It is. It's all, it's all from that. All right. Sorry um, about No, that. but seriously, I do think there is a lot. Well, now we have my... to explain what it was. No, we don't. It's better this way. Okay. I think there, I, I think there is a part I'm thinking of you that is probably just a little wearier f- from your situation right now as the job, and that probably, you know, maybe makes you not as it maybe maybe makes you look at some things that are typically you were a little more amped up for, a little more out of gas for now. True. I'll have to true. think about that. I mean, I definitely was more exhausted at the end of this regular season than I probably had been in a long time. Just so many things come to a head at once now. The coaching carousel has been sped up. So, you know, that's in full swing before the playoff announcement comes in and the playoff announcement happens and the bull pairings get made. Urban Meyer retired, I believe, the next day. And then, yes, I mean, it's, it's just minor annoyances, but like the day after the... Um, a day or two after the conference championship games, I'm filling out 
bold credential forms for people in addition to writing all those articles. So yes, I felt pretty, pretty uh, weighed down, but no, I don't think that is the reason why I'm not as fired up for the uh, cherry bundy uh, cherry bowl. Bun. No, that already happened. The, uh, <laughs> the pinstripe bowl, the, uh, the sun bowl, the sun, the poor sun bowl. Every time Stanford's in it, one of their star players can't play or doesn't play. Yeah, it's been cursed ever since once that went into that three to nothing game <laughs> against Oregon State. They just can't that that poor Elf Bowl now. It's a, supposed to be. I've never been, but it's supposed to be a really cool environment for a game because the it's the unlike a lot of these bowls we were just making fun of that are pure made for TV events. Like the Sun Bowl is exactly what it was still intended to be in. 1939 or whatever it's to promote tourism to el paso and that community really embraces it and they treat the teams great once that told us some stories about that that we can't repeat on the podcast so nothing against the sun bowl but man if you can't tell me even you the world's biggest bowl enthusiast is like can't wait for the uh, stanford pit sun bowl uh i can i'm I'm looking forward to it uh, (laughs) yes Pat Narduzzi against against David Shaw. Can't ask for anything better than that holiday season. I actually do think, I'm not saying this just because of, of, you know, obvious reasons. I think you guys, your crew, got a good one uh, for, for Red Box Bowl, which is, I think, the Big Ten's sixth or seventh choice team. Oregon, Michigan State's a good one. It is a good one, you know, and I, I think that uh, there'll be a, a sea of green out there. Kind of fired up about that. Sea of green. Well, they're both green. That's what I mean. Okay. <laughs> I, I would assume there'll be a lot of Oregon fans there. I, I would imagine Michigan State fans aren't really jazzed after their 7-5 and five season, but I could be wrong. And, and one thing that always surprises me is with any of these big schools, and the Big Ten schools in particular, they have so many alums that live out west that are just glad for the chance to uh, see, you know, a rare chance to see their school in person. And back to the podcast in a minute, Stu... What exciting news do you have for our listeners? The exciting news I have for my listeners is that I've been using Robinhood as my new investment app, and I am loving everything about it, Bruce. I assume for you, it's helping you stay current on all your latest portfolio moves. Yeah, my portfolio is just swimming along still. Well, as you know, Bruce, Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos all commission-free. They strive to make financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy. It's a non-intimidating way for stock market newcomers to invest for the first time with true confidence. I know I love the easy interface and the fact that it is commission-free. Other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, but Robinhood doesn't charge commission fees. You can trade stocks and keep all of your profits. So, Here's the deal. Robinhood is giving listeners a free stock. This is for real, a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help build your portfolio. Sign up at audible.robinhood.com. That's audible.robinhood.com. Anything else we need to we need to hit on? This, I think uh, we need to hit on the mailbag. All right. As always, you can contact us at the audible at gmailpod.com. <laughs> you did that on purpose. <laughs> it just came out. The what audible. <laughs> now you got me confused. The, the audible, audible pod, pod at, gmail. at gmail.com. Thank I haven't actually you. sent you this yet, have I? No, but. just surprise me. Oh, you want to do it that way? Sure. All right. From Greg in Fairfax, Virginia. Dear Stu and Bruce, love the podcast. Been listening for years. Thank you, Greg. 
Now that you are both in favor of an eight-team playoff, perhaps you can both opine on how the first round would work. Would there be games on consecutive weekends in the middle of December? Would there be four games on one weekend? Would there be one on Friday night and three on Saturday? Bruce, how do you see it working? I like the idea we're discussing this, first of all. Um, I think it would be on campus sites of the higher ranked, of the better ranked team. And I think it would all be on Saturday. Let it start from the beginning of the Saturday and roll through the night and then have it consecutive weekends. Uh, uh, You know, like the... uh, So wait, you're saying two games, you're saying all four games on one Saturday, right? Yep. Which Saturday would it be? The one the Heisman's on now. The one like I think you would 15th. start the week after the Heisman. I so think you would have started last weekend this year. Yeah, that's what that's what I think too. In the um, in Nicole's original story, they were the reason they were talking about getting rid of conference championship games would be to have the quarterfinals that weekend. I say let them you know take a couple weeks to recover. And, it would uh, basically be one week to recover. I mean, they would have one Saturday off. That would be your Heisman Saturday slash. Right. Army well, that that would be problematic. By the way, Are you real those guys. If they're if we get to this, you can't have Kyler Murray and Tua and those guys spending the first week of their only then two put, week break. Then put the, the Heisman the after the after the playoff where it should be. I that would that would be fine by me. Here's one problem though for this, which I don't know if anybody's brought up. Uh, if you had this playoff extended, I do think it would it would get really messy messier with the early signing period. Yeah, I mean, well, yes and no. You know, there's only it's just be different teams would be impacted. Like the the teams are most eight, impacted. Eight teams by would it. be impacted the first week. They're not. Well, there's know. eight teams impacted now that play in those early bowl games. They're just not Alabama and Georgia. So it, it's very different, though. Those yeah. bowl games, I think it, you play one game and you can manage it however you want to manage it. But I just think that it's much different when you're talking about recruiting and you're talking about a playoff game. Well, there's also a problem with what you suggested. How are you going to play four games on a Saturday? So each game is about three and a half to four hours long. Are you suggesting that there's going to be one at 9 a.m. or 3 a.m.? What's going on here? I would say you could start out. Look, Big 12 games often start out at 11 o'clock local time. Mm-hmm. I would think you would start out maybe and maybe if you have, you usually will have two teams that are at worst going to be going to be from the eastern time zone i would say do that where you'd start out with an 11 a.m kick eastern time and then it'd be 11 a.m three six thirty and then what ouch 10? ten okay i don't think that is necessarily gonna work but i do no. like the idea he said of having one on friday night and so you could have one at you know, seven yeah, thirty that's PM. That's probably on, a better idea. Yeah. Seven thirty PM on Friday, and then you know, noon four and eight on Saturday. You could even do two on Friday, two on Saturday. Although maybe, I don't think the two on Friday works because you're still talking about getting people to a Friday night game. Well, you could. You, it would only work if the second one was a Pac-12 after dark game, like seven and then ten thirty. Well, that brings you back to the same issue of what you'd have on Saturday. Right. So I think it's one on Friday night. And, do, and the, I want to say one of the rounds the NFL playoffs does that, right? Where there's like one, am I imagining that? There's one on Friday night? or one? No, or it's one Saturday night. and Sunday. Okay. Sa- two Saturday, two Sunday. Still, I, I think that would work. I don't think you would be that worried about somebody having an extra day rest after that if the next one's not for another two weeks after that. But we're both in agreement about it being on campus sites. Okay, next question. Chris Grondike in Pittsburgh, who was nice enough to 
phonetically spell his name. Stuart and Bruce love the podcast and The Athletic. You guys were discussing the non-interesting lineup of non-playoff bowl games this year and mentioned that Pitt, West Virginia in a bowl was a missed opportunity. And that got me to thinking one way to make these games more interesting would be to arrange them so that they feature traditional rivalry games that are no longer played. I'm thinking Texas versus Texas A&M, Nebraska versus Oklahoma, Pitt versus Penn State or WVU, uh, etc. Maybe the bowl should go away from striving for equally matched teams and go for matchups that fans would actually be interested in. I well, think some of those would be easier to pull off than others. Yeah, and also I think the hard part with some of this is the bowls already have their slotting in place, and I think once you start messing with that too much, I'm not sure the other bowls are going to be in agreement because then they're going to go, well, why are we taking you know, a matchup nobody wants when we should have like the number four team? Now we're just, we're just like volunteering them over where you're taking them. And so I, I just don't think the bowls would agree to a lot of that because they, they want their own structure. They're not going to take a worse matchup because they think it's better for college football when it would be much, much worse for their own bottom line. There have actually been several opportunities where if all the parties were aligned, Texas could have played Texas A&M by now in the Texas Bowl. And it's just been pretty clear that nobody, the schools, the bowl, nobody wanted to do that. Now, would would somebody be amenable to a Nebraska OU game if that was possible or a Penn State WVU game? That might be a different story. But yes, the bowls each have like contractual obligations to conferences and there are certain pecking order. I think what kind of is starting... Frankly, what you started to see a little bit of this year is um, they actually went to a more flexible system starting in 2014 where there's not necessarily that hard order for some of the conferences where the conferences can place a team in a certain bowl if it just makes more sense. But there's also certain limits on how often you can go there and you know spreading teams out. Uh, you know, the Big Ten ones, it's five different teams over six years. So... Because of that, that's how Miami, Wisconsin, and the pinstripe bowl, which nobody wants, ended up happening because Wisconsin's already played in a bunch of those Big Ten bowls. So all of those things make it hard to just say, like, yeah, that would be a good matchup. Let's make that happen. It keeps happening. That's the third time Miami and Wisconsin have faced each other in a bowl game in, in the last, like, eight or nine years. How about Florida, Michigan? Going? How many times? Have they played more than that? Three, what did you say, three times in the last eight years? Yeah. Well, they played just last year to open the season in, um, is that the one in Jerry World? Jim McElwain was still the coach. Yeah, Jerry World. And then they played in the, I want to say the Citrus Bowl in Jim Harbaugh's first year. So that's three times since 2015. Mm. And then they've played in various Citrus Bowls and Outback Bowls before that. But that was just a case of, you know, the committee slots those New Year's Six Bowls. And it was either going to be... That was to to avoid having either UCF go back to the Peach Bowl for a second straight year, or UCF play Florida, which again, that way that would be really intriguing, right, from a rivalry yes, perspective. But the Florida pro- didn't want that, and the Fiesta Bowl didn't want two teams from Florida coming three thousand miles away. So that's how you end up with that. Uh, why would the, answer this? Why why wouldn't the Fiesta Bowl want two teams from Florida there? Because how many people are realistically going to travel? I don't know. I a mean, lot, it's a, a good lot game. more Florida fans are going to travel to Atlanta than they would to Arizona. Mm. And then UCF, I, I think would it wouldn't matter. In fact, they'd probably be more energized. Yeah, uh, I'm sure they would. Florida. By the way, that was an interesting story this week. How Florida uh, UCF Danny White, who's becoming a very polarizing figure, I have to say, emailed Scott Strickland unsolicited at Florida and said, 
hey, you know, saw you made a comment about you'd be open to playing us. You know, let's make it happen. Home and home. And Scott Strickland says, well, yeah, but we, we don't do home and homes with a group of five, but we'll do a two for one where they play two in Gainesville and one in Orlando. Danny White objects. This is so unfair, et cetera, et cetera. And then, oh, the Orlando Sentinel is able to somehow FOIA that very quickly thereafter. I wonder how that happened. It's been interesting. I, I think most people are like, are you crazy? Florida's going to vaunt agreeing to come play a game at your stadium? Do it. Yeah, I think I agree. I mean, look, a couple of years ago, it wasn't that long ago where, Florida, where UCF was winless. Yeah. So, um, and it's I not like be a little... big name power five schools are going to lining up to play a group of five school that's very capable of beating them. So, and it's your in-state rival. It's good for recruiting. Like, don't whine about how unfair it is. Just sign, sign the contract. I'm with you still. I'm with you. All right, Matt from Los Angeles. What are your thoughts on the K-State hire with Chris Kleiman? Do you see any common themes to why some FB, FCS coaches who make the jump are successful versus others who fail? Here's what I like about the hire. I mean, the guy's 68 and 6. He, you know, his teams are just more physical and tough. It's a lot of the ways that I think you've had Bill Snyder succeed. I think he is has that. That's what the blueprint has been. And if you look, whether it was Craig Bowl, Craig Bowl has been a good hire for Wyoming. That's a really tough job. They had back-to-back eight-win seasons, and that's the first time they had back-to-back wins that back-to-back seasons that well in 20 years you look at another guy who i think is similar and that's lance leipold who won a t- won a bunch of national titles we're not just talking about a guy who moved up who had a really good good couple of years and then he moved up we're talking about a guy who won more than one national title and moved up and that was leipold at division three he went up to buffalo and buffalo won 10 games which just doesn't happen there so I think it's a pretty good hire. Uh, it's not a splashy wow hire, but let's remember, you're Kansas State. You're not going to get uh, – Urban Meyer is not going to come back and coach K-State. You know, Brent Venables, you could have asked him to come, which I understand they were at interest, but that just didn't happen. So I think you got to be realistic, and I think it's a pretty good hire. I think with a little bit of distance now looking back, you know, I thought it was so bizarre, and I think you did the two at the time that Kansas State fans were so down on the hire. And then you think about it, and it's like, well, they've been. This isn't just any coaching hire. They've been probably thinking for ten years who's going to be the guy that succeeds Matt, uh, Bill Snyder. And I don't know who exactly they were expecting, but maybe they were hoping for a much bigger splash than that. Um, but I do think there's just some dismissiveness of FCS. And again, like you know. You never know exactly which ones are going to work out and which ones aren't. But I will say that, you know, there's a reason Jim Tressel was, he was a great winning coach at Youngstown State. He goes to Ohio State, a place where he has all the resources in the world. Not a surprise that he would be successful. Whereas an FCS coach who goes to a place that's maybe not, has, doesn't have the best infrastructure, doesn't have a great ability to recruit, struggle. I think that uh, while Kansas State is not Alabama, it's got a lot going for it. Uh, great recent history, huge facility upgrades there over the last few years. So a lot, of, a lot of the pieces are in place for him to be successful. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Hey, James B. wanted to just let us know as an LSU fan that he took exception to my statements on LSU fans not being excited for the Fiesta Bowl. It's just not true. This is our first major bowl game since the 2012 National Championship game. UCF hasn't lost since December 2016. And finally, Devin White, our defensive MVP and projected top 15 pick, is suiting up. Not trying to attack you, Stu. I'm sure some LSU fans feel this way, but I believe there's more at stake against UCF than any other New Year's Six game. Wow. 
Interesting. Well, I didn't realize it had been that long since they played in the major bowl. I mean, that's all. That's six years. That is a long time. The crazy thing uh, about that is that UCF has been to three of them since that, that LSU Alabama national championship game. They haven't been to a BCS bowl since. Yeah, and I do think it's significant if they get to ten wins, especially considering this was a team that honestly. I didn't think they were going to win more than seven games, and I think a lot of people didn't think they'd even win that many. So, so that's what I, I was saying before. LSU, you know, assuming he's being representing the, the larger fan base, you know, they're excited. They're going to travel to that game. Florida fans would have been, I, you want me to go all across the country to watch us play UCF? Eh. I think you're selling them short, but you might be right. All right, two more for you. Todd Atkinson, you guys were both very high on Lane Kiffin before the season. Do you give pause now that FSU didn't make its 500 and offensively took several steps back, or that maybe Kendall Bryles might be the real genius since he put up similar numbers with Houston? Good question. I don't, <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that at this point. You know, look, FAU, FAU, one of the things that really hurt them was they got a lot worse on defense. Lane Kiffin's brother, who nobody really talked about, did a really, really good job in Boca, and then he left to be a defensive line coach for the 49ers. The guy who replaced him didn't even last a full year, and then Lane fired him and, and made a change. So I think as much as anything, I think that had something to do with it. That had more to do with it than anything else. But certainly, look, Kendall Bryles did a really good job improving the Houston offense, and that's why I think he's well, that's a big reason why his name has been pretty hot in some offensive coordinator searches. The other thing is the quarterback that the that Kiffin had his first year, Jason Driscoll, was really good, and then he just didn't come back for a senior year. He uh, left football, and then everybody was like, "Oh, that's okay. They've got these two guys who were, who were you know, four star recruits, yeah, and they thought st- they would be really good, and I they mean, and they weren't. So don't take that. I wouldn't. You know, everything you said is true too, but I wouldn't." Um, I wouldn't necessarily look past that. Now, does that mean Lane Kiffin suddenly a dud? No. Um, I think he's got a pretty long track record of success on offense. But he did, it, you, you will notice, he went from being in the news seemingly every day for a tweet or for something to, like, this may be the longest we've gone without hearing from Lane Kiffin in 15 years. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see if it was a flash in the pan or if he gets it back going. I mean, I, I do think there were a disappointment this year because, Devin Singletary was a really, really good running back. He's moved on to the NFL now. And, you know, Lane's recruited well, but we'll see if he can get it going again. This last one has nothing to do with football, but I think it's pretty interesting. From Michael, not pod-related, but can we get rid of oral histories? It seems to have taken over the industry in 2018 and not for the better. It used to be reserved for events from long ago, and now it's everywhere. Heck, the Athletic put up an oral history of the Dolphins' miracle win a day after it happened. The Athletic, in particular, is supposed to be the home of great sports writing. Oral histories are lazy. The journalistic equivalent of a reporter asking, talk about, ouch. Who, who's, who wrote this question, by the way? He just His name is Michael. I think Michael might be my spirit animal. I feel like they are lazy, too, and I've now done a couple of them. I think everything he just said, I kind of agree with. I agree with most of it, but, but lazy? I mean, if anything, you have to do even more reporting for an oral history. Okay, let me tell you something. Okay. He's right, and here's why. I don't think you can ever get writer's block doing an oral history. I, I used to get writer's block a lot when I was when I was doing features for ESPN Magazine. And you should. You, I don't think you'll ever get writer's block doing oral history. Yeah, there's a lot of reporting. 
But here's what I think about the, the reporting thing. Like I had a story earlier this week for our recruiting blitz on offensive linemen. And, you know, I, maybe this is the wrong expression. Maybe this is this is too cliche and I should, you know, as a writer, I should never say this, but I felt like that story. And for me, a lot of ways was like overreported, which you always think you can never overreport something, but then you realize, well, you can overreport it if you start getting a lot of people who feel like they're saying the same thing just in a different way. And with oral histories, it's basically how many different people and how many different perspectives can I get? So you can report the heck out of it. But I just think there's not here. Here's why I think it's a little lazy. You usually do not have to worry about word selection because there are other people's words. And so, yeah, you have to be a little bit creative in the way you tee them up and get them going or the people you talk to. But I think when it comes to just the writing and the word selection part, and yeah, I do think it's lazier. So you, you talked about my different role. I think my opinion on this has changed a little bit. First of all, Grantland was the one. Well, really, I think the oral history craze started with that author, uh, James Andrew Miller, who did the first The Saturday Night Live book that was an or- one big oral history. And then the ESPN. I mean, there was, there was plenty of them. Like the best sports book I've ever read was an oral history. And it was, I read it when I was probably in 10th grade. Huh. And it was called Loose Balls by a writer named, uh, oh, yeah. by a, from Terry Pluto, who's a writer who I think was at the Cleveland Plain Dealer and it was about the ABA. And I do remember that. It was a phenomenal book. And so I, I feel like what you're saying may be true, but I don't think it was like oral histories have been around a lot longer. That, like you could do a, an oral history on oral history. But they were, but the point is that one, at one time they were rare and saved for, you know, particularly special circumstances. Then Grantland started doing them a lot. The ringers obviously continued that. And then, yeah, he's right. The athletic, we do a ton of them. But here's the thing they do very well. <laughs> You know, like, yeah, it does seem like we probably do too many of them and it's become overused, but man, do people read them. So I would just say like with anything, you know, oral history, regular story, whatever, you know, just they got to be good. Uh, There's nothing worse than you start reading one of those because you know they're going to be long and you start reading them and they're just like you said, the same six different people all saying the same thing. Like at that point, you're like, why did this need to be an oral history? But there are plenty that are extremely well done, that are extremely fascinating. I wouldn't necessarily, I guess I guess I'm saying I wouldn't necessarily generalize and, and put them all under the same category. Yeah, I guess my point is why it's lazy is the, is the, word, the word choice part. I think that's one of the hardest things to do when you're writing and you're writing often. You know, as a, like a lot of the times the people who are writing features are strictly feature writers. And quite honestly, they're not like, I don't think they have to multitask a ton. You're really you're you're working on that feature. You may be working on it for two weeks. You may be working on it for two months, but that's the story you live with, and you're not do, so you can agonize over word choice and whatnot. With oral histories, I just don't think there's the window to do that. So that's why that's why I feel the way I feel. I'll tell you this: the the Athletic ran one of the most interesting stories I think we've ever run in the history of our company this week. A um, story about Mike Piazza. He, and I didn't realize this. I guess if you followed this more closely, you would have known this. Bought an Italian soccer team a couple years ago. And within the span of a year and a half, it was bankrupt. And, uh, and his wife had a lot to do with that as well. Just an absolutely fascinating story. And it's a story where I could see five years from now, somebody doing an oral history of it. Where they talk to the players and, and everybody was involved in it. And they all look back on this train wreck of an of a experiment of Mike Piazza buying an Italian soccer team. But this one was written straight up narrative. You just had like 
I mean, his wife is, and him are just both so blunt and on the record and, you know, no need to do an oral history. You can write a perfectly good story that way. All right. Well, maybe someday somebody will do an oral history of the Audible, Stu. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think where, would we, yeah, we'd be able to give them quite a bit of material for that, I think. Yeah, and they could interview Les Miles, the first guest of this podcast. I forgot about that. That was before I, he predated me. Yeah, by the way, so do you take offense in this? So Deitch is talking to me for his podcast yesterday and he referred to me as the co-founder of the Audible. And as you probably haven't gotten to this part yet, but I kind of, I kind of uh, got a little huffy with that. And I'm like, no, technically I am the founder of it. You, it predated you, Stu. I'm the co-host, but Stu is not the co-founder. You and you made sure to clarify that on the podcast. I did, Stu. I'm not that. I'm not that mature. Somehow I listened to the part. Somehow I caught the part where you got huffy about uh, me referring to myself as the boss, but I missed the part where you blew well, that off was my at the tail end. Or, or, so you okay? So I'm gone there just yet. Edited out of it or, or, or aborted it. So again, everybody should listen to that. Actually, they start out talking a lot about just the podcast space in general and. Uh, if there's one thing I've learned is that people who listen to podcasts are very interested in learning about podcasts. So there you go. So we are going to not have a quite normal schedule here over the next few weeks. Uh, next week we'll be off. And then the next time I think we will, you will hear from us will be, we are both going to be at the uh, Alabama-Oklahoma Orange Bowl. So hopefully we'll get one in before the game. Either way, we will definitely have one after the game. And then from there, you know, everything will be kind of timed toward the uh, national championship game. So not every Monday like it has been, but uh, if, as long as you're subscribed, and if you haven't done so already, you should subscribe. You'll, make sh- you'll, know, you'll know when they come out. All right, we'll see you next time. So everybody have a great holiday. Have a great uh, new year if for some reason we don't get to you until 2019. And we'll see you next time. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to The Audible on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star review while you're at it. It helps get the word out. Thanks to Trader Joe's for being our presenting sponsor. Our producer is Nick Fink. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on iTunes and Spotify. Follow me, Stu, at... SL Mandel on Twitter and Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB and subscribe to The Athletic if you haven't done so already you can try it for free 7 day free trial at theathletic.com slash free trial so come on get over here